All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 20. Coming up on the show, we've got psychic bombs and teleporting horses, the Lemurian serpents of wisdom, and the phantom needles of external witchcraft. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. You have no idea what story I have coming up for you on this episode, Ben. I yep. presume it has something to do with teleporting horses and <laughs> phantom needles. Like, yes, got a general does. idea. It does have something to do with that. We also have uh, phantom electrocutions, the fire geist, spontaneous human combustion. No, I ended up going through this story today that was basically looking at the idea of spontaneous human combustion being the result of something that was referred to in the Victorian era as being a silent lightning attack. And I was like, oh, okay, well, what, is this ball lightning? It turns out that's not the case at all. I mean, yeah, there are reports of people that are, you know, encountering things that seem to be like ball lightning. But the fact is, it appears that people are being attacked by almost externalized psychic phenomena that comes about from hate. It doesn't come, I know oh. how, like on the show, every time we find a story that's like, oh, well, the future is all about love. No, this is all about hate. The dark side. It's the dark side. All the weird 14 phenomena that you can imagine, it comes about as this weird externalization of hate. And I'm going to be describing all of it in a plus extension coming up at the end of the show. Very cool. Looking forward to that. A nice change from the usual everything is love. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a bit of a digital shelf elf moment this week. Really? I was looking at old issues of Nexus magazine and this book kept on popping up, you know, in the advertising or they did a review on it or it's in their online store. And then I was looking at an online uh, tweet. I was just looking on Twitter and this book, popped up as well. So that's the closest yeah, you're going to get to is. a digital shelf elf. You just keep seeing this thing. So this is uh, a book from 1997. Mm -hmm. It's The Return of the Serpents of Wisdom by Mark Pinkham. But it's Mark Amaru Pinkham. So you know when people, like, they've got a Western name, but then they change it to be like Babubi or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's, Has he gone under some type of initiate <laughs> yeah, that's, ceremony? You can always presume that yeah. They're, they're like they call themselves Singh or you know Mahatma or something yeah. in the middle. You know that they've gone through something. So I wanted to take a look through this, and it actually led me to Viola Petit Neal, who co-authored this book in the 1960s, I believe. Maybe it came out in the 80s. It's through the curtain. Uh, she co-authored it with Shafika Karagula. Yes, yeah. remember Karagula did that great book in the 60s where she interviewed uh, industry leaders and very successful people and CEOs and scientists, and she got quite a few of them to admit that they had risen to the top of their particular industries because they were able to either, well, in one instance, the business guy was able to leave his body and spy on his competitors. Yeah, it was all very <laughs> much though off the record, wasn't it? It was yeah. quite groundbreaking what she was they, describing. Most of them spoke anonymously, but they all spoke about essentially supernormal abilities. Where I, I realized that Shafika Karagula, who was a um, 
a, a scientist. And she was a, I think she was a psychiatrist and a neurologist. She got these ideas to start looking into this because of her interactions with Viola Petit-Neal. Oh, I see. Who was a physicist, who was her um, first uh, physics teacher, I think in, they might have been in, in the UK where they were studying. And Viola essentially met Shafika Karagula years later and said, you know, look, I, I need you to, to hear me out because when I go to sleep at night, and this had been happening to her for decades and decades, she says, I don't actually dream or, you know, lose consciousness like most people. I actually go to a university in another dimension and I sit in class and a lecturer teaches me all these things. And this okay. has been going on for years. And so Karagula, you know, thought, well, hang on, this is, this is crazy, but started to study um, what she was experiencing. And it was interesting because this woman, Viola Petit-Neal, uh, she regained, like she retained her consciousness when she went to sleep and she actually was able to hold three different versions of consciousness. So she was aware that she was in the room sleeping, but she was also aware that she was somewhere else, like in this a, a university on another planet in another dimension with a class full of students learning this crazy stuff. But also she had the ability to essentially translate what she was being told and uh, uh, speak out loud while she was asleep. Yeah. Okay. So what Shafika Karagula did was sit there with a tape recorder and transcribe everything that came through. And I'm going to share with you some of the classes she went into uh, which reveal that we're being invaded by the Plutonians. <laughs> the, the Plutonians. That's right. Okay, I only read about this actually recently. I was looking into some regression stuff, and all of it was pretty much, you know, standard past life regressions where people, you know, go back and you know, they they pull pieces of information out that were kind of compelling. You know, they were able to go and find old streets that they'd apparently lived on, that kind of stuff. But what really stuck out with some of these cases, but there was a couple of people that have described that when they went through past life regressions, because time seemed to be expanded or contracted, it was obviously, you know, not the same kind of time that we have. When they were in a regression, they could go back into a previous life and then go through a bunch of lessons wherever they've, you know, previously gone to school or university or learned an instrument or a Andy. language and then bring it back with them. And then when they come out of the regression, which they've only been in for an hour, they're suddenly speaking a foreign language yeah. they can play a saxophone. It's like loading up skills from the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, you just pick incredible. a past life where you were incredible at basketball and you just start shooting threes. Yeah, just pull that information through. That's how it works. So let me go into Mark Amaru Pinkham's book, The Return of the Serpents of Wisdom. He says... For the past 20 years, he's pursued a spiritual path which has taken him all around the world. He's studied indigenous religious philosophies and cosmologies and sacred histories. And he claims he had discovered a thread, this subtle thread that links all the world's religious traditions together. He's, all of them. He, he's found what unites them. And he says this uniting thread is the ubiquitous symbol of the serpent and its affiliation to the masters and adepts of the world's spiritual traditions. So you think the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. Quetzalcoatl, the plumed serpent, the dragons from China. He says, traditionally, these diverse masters have been intimately connected with the snake, the serpent, or the dragon. And he also mentions the Nagas from India, of course, the, the Lung dragons in China, the uh, Jedi snakes in Egypt. He says, collectively, that collectively, they've been called the serpents of wisdom, but they're also connected in a worldwide network of spiritual adepts known as the Great White Brotherhood. 
Yes, which we're familiar with. This is something I've been talking about on the Plus shows a lot quite recently, where, uh, you know, Cyril Scott, for example, a theosophist musician, uh, revealed with his books in the 1980s that he had been contacted by one of these members, one of these alleged members from the Great White Brotherhood who guided him in the music he was going to release. This is something that the theosophists spoke about in the 19th century and the early 20th century of these uh, ascended masters who were still operating within humankind, but they kind of remained hidden. They would use emissaries and send them out to contact specific people in society to kind of guide and, and shape society in a way. And this is ex- essentially what Pinkham is saying. They've had this really important role in shaping many of the world's religious traditions. They actually shape belief systems. And he says, look, now I'm compelled to reveal them because I've been studying them. I found this thread. So, as we suspected, he has been initiated. He claims he's aligned himself with the worldwide organization of the Serpents of Wisdom by gaining initiation into the Order of the Nagas. I'd imagine that would be quite difficult. So, how did he manage to do that? Kill someone. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. You just mugged him. That's all. I don't know. I don't know what he had to do. But uh, apparently it wasn't hard because he also got initiated into the Hindu Serpents Secret Society. (laughs) So you get into one and then you get into all. As well as the Order of the Amarus and the Incan Serpents. Okay. So he went to a different continent and joined the Serpent Secret Society there as well. He says, I've tried to restrict my work to gathering accountable historical records. And indeed, his book is full of all these uh, historical references and, and records to documents and archaeological studies. And there's a fair bit of work there. Although I did notice that some of his references just go to like George Hunt Williamson books. Right, <laughs> so they're well, all mm. contactees. But uh, for the stuff that doesn't have references, he says, look, I just got it from the Akashic Records. What do you mean? You, you don't just wander into the Akashic Records and get that information. Well, because he got initiated into the worldwide organization, the Secret Society of Serpents of Wisdom. They just have a gateway somewhere? Well, they must have trained him to be able to access the Akashic Records, which is the records of all knowledge and history of the Earth that's stored in another dimension somewhere. He was able to read it. Not really a reliable reference, though, from a, uh, I guess, a, a scientific Can standpoint. Can you stop crapping it? on my segment already? <laughs> I'm like five minutes in, dude. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So he says many times during the course of history, certain individuals have come forward and and they've claimed to have realized the purpose and goal of existence. These masters have successfully united the male and female principles within themselves. They've raised the inner transformation fire serpent from the seat, its seat at the base of the spine, Kundalini, Kundalini, and awakened the consciousness of love. Oh, (laughs) Oh, I like how our show is going to be yin and yang today. (laughs) I didn't even know this. They've awakened love with all their hearts. And for these rare individuals, the evolutionary cycle of spiritual transformation has been completed. These enlightened men and women have reached the goal of their spiritual paths and have become androgynous serpents of wisdom. Who was it? Who was the guy that was describing it as what was the answer to humanity was androgyny? (laughs) You see, it's all about culminating the female goddess embracing your androgyny. I'm sorry, but there's something immensely disturbing about an elderly man, a very creepy elderly man, Constantly saying androgyny. Yeah, Aaron's remembering this YouTube video that we found once but can could never find again. Of <laughs> I can what, remember it perfectly. What looked like a moldy old pedophile 
just rambling about young boys for like 20 minutes. And then his conclusion was androgyny. <laughs> and he just, she was so creepy. It's disturbing. I wish we could find it. I know. Um, so in, in symbolical terms, he's talking about the eagle, which is the, the male principle, being fully united with the snake, which is, he claims that's the feminine principle. Uh, and they've become the serpents of wisdom with this uh, merging. Oh, so is that like the feathered serpent? Is that what that is? Yes. That's the merging? Of- yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's where it comes from. The serpents of wisdom wield unlimited serpent wisdom and powers, including the ability to materialize any physical object at will. They dwell within immutable physical bodies, which can survive for hundreds of years. Although they experience the world primary, primarily out of an immortal fourth dimensional dragon body, an etheric sheath which surrounds and impenetrates the physical body. Contained within their dragon bodies are supernatural senses of clairvoyance, clairaudience, telepathy, omniscience, omnipresence, which allow the serpents to remain in continual communication with the subtle realms. So this is people like uh, St. Germain would be one of these guys. Yeah. Or Falconelli, whoever he is. Um, she is. These... these uh, masters that look like us but have these incredible abilities. If they so desire, they can extricate the dragon body from its physical sheath and travel within it to distant locations throughout the universe. So the dragon body then is the astral body? No, it's, it's well, maybe. Maybe they've mastered the astral body and they, they can just go pop into it. And is it literally a dragon? Or, or pop is that out just of their physical body? No, it's just like, I don't know why he keeps, ref- I don't know why this guy's so obsessed with dragons and serpents. It's a really weird fetish. Like everything is serpent this and serpent that. But he claims they can also uh, relocate. They can pop out of their dragon body when they're finished and essentially go to one of the paradise realms of the immortals so they can go to the heavens. Uh, they're also like a global secret society. Like they're a global organization. He claims that collectively, uh, they, they're all connected. They kind of, they operate, um, generally they, they remain by themselves, like solitary, but they're all connected telepathically and they operate as a kind of organization. He says other names for them would, would be the solar brotherhood, uh, the people of the serpent or the great white brotherhood. And they, uh, they have this goal of this spiritual upliftment of the entire human race. So from here, he does this breakdown of this kind of cosmology of what he's discovered by being initiated into these secret societies. He claims that it can all be traced to the very dawn of time, essentially before the creation of anything. So where there's just a a mind, a single mind of God, and he claims from out of this sea of consciousness emerged the first form of spirit, which was, of course, a dragon, a resplendent dragon. This was the serpent of wisdom. And for some reason, God gave this dragon, this primal dragon, all of its powers of creation and preservation and destruction. And through it, this, this, well, through this dragon, through this serpent, he claims God created the universe. So it's kind of like the Big Bang Theory or some kind of religious, um, you know, yeah, it's a God created the world idea, except there's a dragon in it. <laughs> so it's way cooler. Uh, and he talks about how this then split off into angelic orders of serpents. And there was like the sacred seven archangels who were also dragons. Um, and he references the Australian aboriginals who have uh, the rainbow serpent. 
and he claims that that has seven aspects. So all cultures understand this this division of the seven archangels that kind of guided creation. In the Greek Gnostic tradition, for example, there's seven sons of the serpent goddess Sophia. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, they've been called the seven archangels of Yahweh and the Elohim. Uh, next in line are an order of angelic luminaries known as the seraphim. So the seraphim, he claims, are flaming serpents. Their function is to rule over the dissemination and awakening of divine wisdom within evolving souls. And they work in tandem with another class he calls the cherubim. So they're basically cherubs, those little baby dudes. <laughs> they're, they're snake cherubs? But they're snake cherubs. He calls them the Karabu or the Karubu. They sometimes manifest in the form of zodiacal dragons. But yeah, basically the Western version of a cherub is where that comes from. And the cherubs help disembodied spirits from the earthly plane. They, they get guided back to the heavenly kingdoms. That's their role. Uh, so he goes on and on about this structure, this huge cosmology of these serpent dragons and how they guide reality, they create reality. But he also claims that there's angelic serpents of extraterrestrials. He calls them the orders of extraterrestrial serpents of wisdom. So it's kind of like these serpent secret societies on other planets, he claims they came to Earth and started to essentially establish the, the planet, establish uh, a way of life, establish rules and laws. And he goes into, of course, that's why you have the legend of Quetzalcoatl and these um, serpent uh, dragon related founders of civilization. So that's why they show up through history because they're essentially ancient aliens. He claims for millions of years, extraterrestrial serpents of wisdom have been coming to our solar system to assist in its evolution. So the reptilians. No, he's never really clear on the physical structure of the moon. Some of them look humanoid, some of them don't, some of them are serpent-esque, but they come from all different locations in the universe, supposedly, and they assist um, when there's a new planet that needs to be helped. And he claims they've built interstellar bases and pyramidal structures on many planets, including Mars, Venus, and the Earth, and they've been able to monitor the phase of evolutionary development on our planet. So I would say things haven't gone well on the other planets, so where are we at? No, no, the the rest of the planets have been fine. It's just we're like the kindergarten and they're still kind of helping us. He claims there's a 104,000-year cycle of the development of the human race. So that's four 26,000-year worlds. Sections. Which is the procession of the equinox, yeah. right? Um, and he talks about uh, in pre-Christian traditions, every major cycle of time begins with the birth of a serpent goddess followed by her division into dragon twins. So he goes into all these uh, different versions of this, but essentially what he's talking about is the two divisions that appeared on Earth, and he claims these were the twin dragon lands. Now, this is obviously Atlantis and Lemuria, and he spells this out. He says these twin continents existed at opposite ends of the planet in what is now the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. These were gardens of Edens, cradles of civilization, dragonlands and motherlands. He says, each dragonland engendered a civilization consistent with the nature of the polarity it embodied. So Lemuria was all about positive polarity and the spiritual principle and 
produced a spiritually motivated civilization dedicated to the development of divine qualities like love and acceptance and living in harmony with the earth and patting animals and having a farm and all that nice stuff. By contrast, the motherland of Atlantis embodied the negative polarity and material principle, and so they developed kick-ass tanks and weapons and lasers and a materialistic civilization with analytical reasoning and technological research and the domi- and they wanted to dominate planet Earth. So there's this dichotomy between the two for tens of thousands of years. Uh, and from here, he talks about all these ancient legends of Lemuria, like he goes into the Polynesian legends. And this is where he does quite good research, where he digs up... Um, you know, the the ancient names that they used, how this crosses over with ancient Sanskrit. There's a lot of links in those cultures which we've spoken about on previous shows. But my whole uh, question with this, especially when he's talking about androgynous ETs who have come down and become the kings of Lemuria and Atlantis for tens of thousands of years, is where are you getting all this from? Because you can't find references to that, really. I mean... Well, and clearly the Akashic records. I mean, yeah, this is what I was this is what I was trying to find. Like, where is this coming from? And eventually he starts talking about Sedona. And as he, in Arizona. Well, yeah, Sedona in Arizona. And he's saying that they constructed a powerful temple there with a giant underground crystal vortex generator that oh, essentially we've heard, yes, we've heard of this. That essentially powered the entire earth. And it, it's, it was built over this, he calls it the Dragon's Lair, this energy vortex in Sedona, Arizona. So I'm thinking, where is he getting all this? Like, where, this Arizona stuff has been spread around for ages. Where is he getting all of this? Well, he claims that um, in February of 1987, he was in Sedona. And he uh, arrived, he claims he had a, a bit of a belief crisis. And he went to one of the local shopkeepers in Boynton Canyon I don't know what he said. Like, I'm having a belief crisis. Give me a burrito or something. But (laughs) he got... Wait, why would you go to a shopkeeper with a belief crisis? Anyway, the shopkeeper gave him instructions on how to get to this... He wasn't in Boynton Canyon. The the shopkeeper told him how to get to Boynton Canyon to try and, you know, give him something interesting to see, maybe to get him out of the shop. Aren't there all those Dongo reports out of Boynton Canyon of weird portals opening and... Yeah. uh, So I think I know where this is going. So... He followed the shopkeeper's instructions and he he left his hotel early the next morning and he traveled to the entrance of Boynton Canyon. And he claims he started to trudge through the snow like there was a foot high of fresh snow. He's trudging for two miles and all of a sudden he was overcome by a sudden wave of inspired uh, guidance, he said. And he felt compelled to look at one of the canyon walls. And when he scanned the upper portion of the wall, he saw this ledge jutting out. And for some reason, he thought, I, I, well, he intuitively knew that he needed to climb it. And it was bloody treacherous. Like, it was going up this steep cliff. But he claims he's guided by something. So he starts climbing. He starts basically mountain climbing. Finally gets to the top, like, trudging through this area. And then realizes, he claims, why he was guided there. Because he has this vantage point of the entire canyon. He can see everything. And he says he got out all the photographs and illustrations of his spiritual teachers and like surrounded himself in a circle with them. So he, so he did like a weird wish board? 
Yeah, he probably had like Sanat Kamari or whatever his name is, and probably a side bummer There's a side bummer there. definitely somewhere in there. Some like ascended Mars Saint Germain would have been there with his like gay looking face and his purple eyes. Yeah, why do they always make him look so effeminate? These <laughs> because masters? it's because it's always like Versailles French style. Well, I realize it's because they're all androgynous. That's oh, why. Okay, that must right. be why. Yeah, uh, and he lined them all up in a circle, and um. He made eye contact, he said, with each master in the photo, closed his eyes and began to repeat a prayer. God, please give me something to believe in again. And he said within three minutes, he heard this voice in his head loudly say, look in front of you and you will see. So he slowly opens his eyes and he sees two ornate columns right in front of him that have been carved into the canyon wall and he's stunned because they weren't there before, these colossal columns. And he's like, what the hell's going on? He rubs his eyes. And he looks down in the canyon below. And to his amazement, the entire canyon has transformed. Instead of seeing this, you know, just bare rock and snow and a couple of peeled trees, almost everywhere he looks, he sees these perfectly formed temples. They're constructed out of stone that's like from the stone similar to the canyon. And in the center of these temples, there's this radiant silver pyramid made of metal with golden discs attached to each side. Now, he actually has binoculars with him, so he gets out his binoculars and it's still, everything's still there. He notices that they've got these ornate carvings on them that remind him of what he's seen on temples in India. And interspersed among these temples, he can see all these statues of men and women in various poses. Some of them look like they're dancing. Some are holding up weapons. And he can see the image of, on the side of one of the temples, this human head stacked on top of another human head. Like a totem pole? Yeah, like this, yeah, like a weird totem pole. And again, this voice is in his head saying, this is the symbol of the ancient colony of Mu. And at this point, the entire experience becomes crystal clear to him. He claims that his prayer had opened his psychic vision and now he's seeing fourth dimensional structures that had been placed by the colonists of Lemuria in the distant past. He says, only days after leaving Boynton Canyon did I become aware of the esoteric legends of Sedona and its Lemurian affiliations. Because Sedona is supposedly one of these yeah, one of these. Well, remember there was that legend that, yeah, there was a massive crystal underneath Sedona, which was generating power for all these uh, portal entrances and exits. But what he's describing there, if he's saying there's like a fourth dimensional, is it like there's, um, what, some type of structures that are out of phase that he can now see? They're in another dimension. They're in a, the fourth density, the fourth dimensional density, whatever that means. But he can now see them. He can see them now. Um, because he explains later that because these earlier serpent wisdom people could could basically interpenetrate multiple, multiple dimensions. When they built something, they didn't just build it in the physical dimension. They built it in multi-layers. They built it in multiple layers and he could see the remnants left over even though our dimension, in our dimension, it had been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, he also talks about a, a legend maintained that the records of Lemuria were inscribed upon a Tolonium tablet and were hidden underneath this valley in Sedona. And I looked up the source and this was from, again, George Hunt Williamson. So most of his sources are coming from uh, contactees or this experience. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So after his visit to Sedona's Canyon, it's about a month later, he's uh, hiking through the thick forest near his home in Washington State. And he says for many days leading up to this hike, he'd been feeling this urgency that he, he really wanted to know who he was at a soul level, he says, and what his true purpose on earth was. And almost as soon as he set off on this hike, he said these feelings were starting to grow and grow inside him. And he said while walking along this river that's flanked, it's beautiful, like flanked by green ferns on either side, you know, there's wild flowers and bees and yeah, the birds are singing. Um, he, this beautiful moment turns into this moment of desperation and he finds himself crying out to his guides and teachers to reveal to him what his soul burned to know. He was like, awaken me, please. <laughs> Can you imagine being a guide? Can you imagine being a spiritual guide? I'd be like, stop being a failure. <laughs> stop being a loser. And, and dealing with these these whingy losers. That's what, you know what? This is what I find really to be unusual about this stuff. You've got so many just whingy, like, defeated, lost souls. As if guides, like, yeah, you're definitely the person that I want to <laughs> raise up and help raise humanity's vibrations. Okay, I'm glad that you're getting the vibe of my segment. <laughs> you look confused for a while. You're getting the vibe now. Assistance finally arrived. It spoke to him in that same familiar voice that he had heard in the canyon in uh, Sedona. And this time the voice instructed him to hike to the top of a nearby hill where he would find his answer to awaken me up, open me up now. What is my purpose? So he scurries up the hills, he gets to the summit and he finds this circle of tall fir trees and it's surrounded by a thick bed of ferns. And it's almost like, it looks like a large crown on the top of the hill. Like it's a really conspicuous arrangement of trees. And again, the voice speaks in his head and says, lie down in the ferns and you'll receive your wisdom. He's like, all right. He nestles into the soft bed of ferns. And he says a supernatural process started to occur around and within him. Did a serpent enter his kundalini? Well, he said he felt the crown of his head suddenly open up, like something blasted it open. like, And it, he, it felt like something had, well, someone had removed part of his skull, like actually chipped his skull away. And he claims a river of white light started to pour into his head and start filling up his body. And he's just, of course, he's there like... <laughs> 
And he said he could perceptively feel the scintillating radiations of this cool life force as it moved throughout all the cells and his brain. And Mate, you're allowing yourself to be possessed. And it covered him like a long white gown, he said. He looked down and he was just covered by this crazy white light. He said it felt incredibly soothing and empowering. And he claims a part of himself that had been slumbering for countless ages spontaneously awoke and started to merge into his consciousness. He says, as it arose, it smoothly meshed with and empowered my normal self. He said, my personality was simultaneously transformed and I realized that I was now in the possession of a thick English accent. <laughs> yeah. So it's, what kind of English accent? Like, is it Cockney? <laughs> All right, mate. Just woken up in it. Is that is that what it is? <laughs> Fresh from the streets of Sussex. That, why? And then the memories start to come. Recollections of this old part of himself, which he says has now taken full control of his consciousness. He says, I or it, I couldn't distinguish between it, suddenly remembered having been on Earth many thousands of years previously. He's describing a walk-in. Yeah, exactly. He's like, it's not me, but now it kind of feels like me. It entered my body and took over my consciousness after this weird voice told me to lie down in the woods. And now he says all these memories of him being a priest king on a Pacific island paradise, which was once part of Lemuria, start to emerge in his mind. Yeah, this is stuff that Rex Gilroy has looked at, the uh, the lost civilization of Mu and there being a Pacific uh, culture of some kind. It, it fits in with this kind of stuff. Yeah, he claims that the information he's gathered from the Akashic Records and elsewhere has suggested that there was a continent known as Lemuria, but mm. there was a, a disaster at first which broke it into smaller island, an island chain. Uh, and then later on, there was another disaster and all those islands were destroyed. So he's remembering in the latter part of that timeline where he's a king in charge of one of these islands. And uh, in his small sector of Lemuria, which was close to what is now the coast of China, he says, I had administered to my subjects as an enlightened monarch and apparently as an illumined Kumara, which is like one of these people of the serpent wisdom. He said, I had been a vassal of the great Venusian master, Sanat Kumara, who was at the time the Grand Emperor over all the islands of Lemuria. While attending to my royal duties, I remember travelling extensively throughout Mu and had even visited the area of Washington I was now living in. The white light still coursed through me and the feeling of being electrically charged by it remained tangible. He said, as I sat upon my bed of ferns, I recognised that this new cosmic empowerment was very familiar. It had been my natural state as an androgynous Lemurian priest king of the Kumari lineage. So he literally wakes up. He literally wakes up and is like, yeah, I'm British now and I don't have a penis or a vagina. Why? Okay. If you're a Lemurian king, I have to ask this question. Why do you have a British accent? Exactly. That's the question I had the whole way through. Why would you? Why on earth would you have an English? It doesn't make any sense at all. So uh, <laughs> he says, uh, while on uh, Lemuria, 
this power had enabled me to telepathically communicate with Sanat Kumara and the other masters of the Earth's hierarchy. So we had this kind of telepathic internet going on where they're just instant messaging each other all the time. And he said he could also talk with beings on other planets and in other dimensions. He said it also allowed me the freedom to travel to any destination in an instant, either by teleportation or air shuttle. Well, we know what teleportation is. What is the air shuttle? I find that really funny. That's like saying I can teleport anywhere in the universe or I can catch the bus to any bus stop that's on the bus's route. That's the imaginative power I have. No, I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that. <laughs> I surely. can catch the bus to any bus stop in my little island, you see. He says when the transmutation into his former Lemurian self was fully completed, <laughs> listen to this. He says, I arose to my seat, my feet victorious and picking up a stick nearby as my royal staff I joyfully descended the small hill and set off into the dense forest while continually proclaiming in my new English accent, I'm back, my boys. I'm back indeed. I'm back. <laughs> I just get this image of like a half-naked guy in a white yeah. robe just going, yeah. Yeah, like one of, one of those crazy people you see like shitting in public in town hall in Sydney. Just, yeah, covered in a shit-stained white robe with a staff of some kind, which is just a stick. Come here, my boy. I will tell you the future. Mm, come and listen to my Lemurian stories. <laughs> he said, as I bounded along under the rows of towering evergreen trees, another part of my prayer began to be answered. I was told that I had returned to Earth this time because the planet is completing a great cycle of time, which had begun with Lemuria, and those of us who had been Kumaras or highly enlightened kings were now returning in fresh bodies to assist the transition into a new age. This this is absolutely just all walk-in stuff. Like this is Ruth Montgomery to a T. It's like every single walk-in claims that they're here to help humanity in this certain cycle that is a downturn, but we're going into a golden age and they need to be here yeah. to help the rest of us raise up our vibrations. Yada, yeah, that's yada, exactly yada. it. He claims the, the coming age is a world of love. Uh, it's a golden age, and he's uh, in, he's going to essentially guide humanity into this golden age or help guide humanity. Uh, and he had been reborn in an area, because uh, I think he was born in Washington, which had been previously a part of Lemuria to reclaim some of the soul force he had possessed as a Lemurian king in one of his previous incarnations. So he could better assist the planet. I don't know why I'm asking this, but what soul force that he lost? I don't know. <laughs> Just this random words that are thrown into the book. After hours of blissfully flying through the forest in my supernaturally hours. charged body, he says. <laughs> so he's just imagine the other hikers, they just see him coming, like, God, my royal subjects. It is your king, your liege. <laughs> Waving his stick around. He's probably chanting in Latin yeah, as he runs past. Cock and balls flying out with his stupid <laughs> robe. <laughs> Look, I am smooth now. Yes. Look, behold! <laughs> Androgyny manifests. It's just a big ball in his face. <laughs> uh, but then he started to get confused. And he started to despair because it was getting dark and he realized he had to go home. And he was like, oh, 
I'm a husband and I'm also a healer and I'm kind of not interested in those things anymore because I'm actually a king. And he says, he literally says in the book, he's like, I was a king, so I should have a kingdom to rule. But he realized part of his mind is still going, no, you're just a loser walking in the forest and you need to go back home to your wife and your regular job. Like, just stop. So he starts again praying to his guides. He's like, oh, help me. And his guides, he claimed with great compassion, they began a process of contracting his consciousness. And it took a couple of days. Like he actually went home and he's with his robe and his stick and his androgynous feelings. Uh, but after a couple of days, he claims his life was back to normal. But he had been changed forever. When you say he's a healer, do you mean as in like energetic healer or is he actually a medical no, practitioner? No, he's an acupuncturist. He's an acupuncturist. Mm, okay. All right. I still wonder if he's caught something. So the rest of the book, I mean, I was hunting for more of his experiences because I just found that hilarious. <laughs> he's just yeah, absolutely. cavorting around in the forest thinking he's, he's some androgynous Lemurian king. But that's that's kind of all he reveals. And the rest is his research, which is actually pretty good. Like some of it's quite good finding those connections between ancient societies. Um, and I won't fault him on that. I think some of that stuff is is good. Um, but I wanted to see where this was going. So I kind of skipped ahead to the end because I want to see what this new, this new world is going to be. And he claims that these secret societies that have been guiding humanity... They attained freedom of democracy in Europe and North America, but this was just a stepping, stepping stone to their final goal of a new world order in society. Oh, don't like the sound of that. This had been the ultimate goal of the serpents of wisdom for the past 2,000 years and one which had been continually worked for by them. Its arrival is now on the threshold. So you mean, hang on, Serpent, you see how the stories are parallel. Serpentine entities are coming through to establish a new world order that's going to change the world. Like, what does that sound like? It sounds like a lot of conspiracy theories out there at the moment. Didn't we just? Didn't we just talk about this? Didn't I do a segment about this with the whole, um, you know, Jesus being part of the Essenes, and this could be traced yeah. to the Freemasons, and ultimately that was their goal as well—to have some kind of new world religion, some kind of new world order. And then I just did a show on Denver Airport and its connections to the new world order. Why is everyone so obsessed with having everything melded together into one thing? Yeah, it's a bit. Why weird. can't we be different? Why can't we have different people doing different things? Well, exactly. why, can't, why can't we have different areas that have their own destiny in their own hands? Why does everything have to be under the control yeah, homogenous. of one group? Yeah, and it's all homogenous. Yeah. Everything's the same. Oh, God, it's a bit Why terrible. does it have to be that? So he claims that this is a prophecy that the order of serpents since the beginning of this 104,000-year cycle have been building towards, and it's the dawning of a new age where a greater number of people than ever before will have a new spiritual awareness and an alchemical transfer excuse me an alchemical transformation will take place uh, all terrestrial life on the globe will experience this rapid evolution as earth raises up and is transformed into the new planet of the phoenix and i was wondering what exactly this means because he talks about you know some earth changes the usual stuff like a bit of destruction a bit of transformation well if you have a phoenix you need a fire yeah, but he, he eventually talks about this one world culture. 
And he says part of the polarity union on and within the Earth will involve the reunion of the vestigial remains of the opposing Earth twins. And he's talking about Atlantis and Lemuria. They had different characteristics. And they formed contrasting cultures, contrasting souls came out of them. But eventually they're going to be synthesized into a new Lemurian-Atlantean culture that will combine the Atlantean left-brained technology with the right-brained spirituality and tradition and intuition of the Lemurians. But where is this going to take place? Well, he claims that this is all going to be activated in the United States of America. The United States and its earliest symbol, the phoenix, have been the designated country of this 104,000-year cycle and prophecy. It's the place where the phoenix, the bird of freedom, will initially spread its wings before embracing the entire planet. The country is also destined to be a place where the united Atlantean-Lemurian culture will emerge. Within the United States, Earth's perennial melting pot, all polarities will unite and the androgynous flame of the new world will be kindled. My interpretation of this, and happy Thanksgiving to all our American audience. Yes, absolutely. Is that you guys, you're going to be the new androgynous freaks. Whether you like it or not, just one day you're going to wake up. Smoothies. And you're going to be smooth down there, and you're going to realize that Ben was right. And you're going to lead this new world of androgynous, I don't know, phoenix bullshit, whatever it is. (laughs) And that's your destiny and you have to accept it. Again, none of it means anything though. None of it, like what's, okay, so this happens and then what's next? Great point, Aaron. Yeah, like what is, what is the meaning behind being uh, androgynous? What, what is androgyny and a new physical merging of these polarities mean in your everyday interactions with people, in your everyday philosophy in life, in your moral countenance and your, you know, the way you carry yourself? Like, what does it actually mean for your character? What does it mean at all? That's a great question. It feels like everything else becomes extremely boring as well. I mean, there's a lot of fun in there being, you know, people being people, different cultures, men, women, like everything different. You shouldn't have this, everyone's going to be wearing the same clothes. We've all raised our vibrations. We're all holding snake staffs. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> like, it doesn't sound like it's a lot of fun. Maybe it's better than what we've got now. No, I like it now. It is nuts, <laughs> but nuts is fun. So, yeah, that book did not go where I expected it to go because when I was skimming through, again, he does have all this great research on, you know, words that connect across different cultures and why that might be so and it's pointing to an ancient civilization and all of that's kind of solid. But Do you have to end it abruptly because he got arrested for exposure in the wilderness? (laughs) Well, it's when he goes into his visions from the Akashic Records that it just kind of gets so wild that you, you don't know what to do with it. So... This is actually what led me into Through the Curtain by Viola Neal and Shafika Karagula. And I just wanted to share with you some of the introduction from Karagula because she sets up this story. Basically, she claims that in way back in 1930, uh, that's when she first met uh, Viola and it was this friendship that would last for 50 years. And she was the first teacher of physics and mathematics at the American School for Girls in Beirut, Lebanon. Actually, it was in Lebanon they first met uh, and later became a colleague and um, research collaborator uh, with Shafika. And she says, during the first 25 years, we 
were constantly in correspondence, but they each went their separate ways. So basically, she went to Egypt, uh, Viola went to um, teach there, and eventually she landed in Oxford and uh, obtained a doctorate in philosophy from London University later. She got a PhD. Um, she did this massive thesis on secret religions in the Middle East. She took that route. And Shafika said she became a physician. She went to Edinburgh University in Scotland and she became a neuropsychiatrist. Uh, and she was really interested in the human mind and abnormal states. And essentially, she was trying to find a materialist answer to hallucinatory states. Um, and long story short, Shafika's research led her to believe that all of mankind's experiences were limited to the physical brain and the five senses. Yeah, She really became a staunch materialist. And she says it was in 1956 that she was visiting Viola, her old friend, that Viola opened up to her. Like Viola must have noted that her old friend had become so stuck in her ways, stuck in her thinking, had become a staunch materialist and decided to share with Shafika this um, experience that she'd been having her entire life. And Shafika says, for the first time, Dr. Neil revealed to me her own personal experiences, one of which was that she was when she was falling asleep, she would see in her mind's eye moving pictures of beautiful flowers and places and people in very sharp, bright colors. Now, these had no particular significance in her own personal life, but she said it was interesting. It's like a little bit more than dreams. But the second experience she explained was that when she went to sleep, she was aware of being in another dimension, attending lectures on many subjects dealing with both science and philosophy. She referred to this experience as the night classes. Upon awakening, she could recall the lectures the following morning if she so wished. And thirdly, she claimed she was a student of the ancient wisdom teaching and an accepted disciple in Master Jupiter's ashram. <laughs> Who's Master Jupiter? He's one of these serpent guys in another dimension. <laughs> He's got an ashram in like the fifth realm of Kumat Marari or something. She had been aware of this since early childhood. So she'd been contacted when she was a kid uh, and she uh, wrote this book of poetry called Fragments of Experience, a spiritual journal in 1978. And she dedicated it to him by just saying dedicated to MJ in oh, the okay. forward. And yeah. Shafika was always like, who's MJ? Is that her lover or someone I didn't know about? Like, who is this MJ? And eventually she's like, no, that's Master Jupiter in the fifth dimensional ashram that I go to at night. And he's the best professor there. Um, so she also claimed that she could perceive at a distance and communicate telepathically with the ashram of Master Jupiter, uh, which was a department of the spiritual hierarchy of our planet. So she could essentially mentally, I don't know, check in when her classes were and you know, just see what the schedule was. Sounds exhausting. These abilities were never discussed or shared except with a handful of her very close friends. And since her passing, Shafika says, I am now permitted to disclose this information. So yeah, this book was released. Again, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in the late 70s, early 80s, but they were working on this from, you know, from the 60s onwards. So this was a lot of work. Um, and Shafika said, look, this disclosure from my good friend, who I know is not crazy, who I know is a physicist and a quite uh, ingenious intellectual, Shafika didn't know what to do with this information. And 
as a researcher of the human mind, she wanted verification. So she was actually allowed to question her during her sleep about these night classes. And then the following morning, she would basically try and see if she could recall the class she had taped the night before because she thought, you know, is she is some other personality coming through? Is she actually aware of what's going on? Is she just talking in her sleep? Like, how accurate is this? Well, she ended up getting, to her amazement, pages of information from these lectures. And in the morning, she would check with Viola, like, what do you remember? And she'd just almost verbatim get the whole thing. And she used, like, scientific instruments to make sure that she was asleep. You know, she would, like... Well, she used an EEG to monitor her sleep patterns. I don't know if she used an EEG, but she took lengths to make sure that, you know, she wasn't faking it, I guess. But, you know, this was her close friend who she knew and trusted as well. So, basically, Viola had continuity of consciousness during waking in these sleeping states. She would essentially go to sleep and then go to class and then wake up and have a full recollection like there was no there's no unconscious state and she said this got quite exhausting so she would have to take breaks you know she wouldn't be able to go to a class every night it would be like one or two a week um so she could recharge but in those times that she gone it's just this continued memory this continued consciousness now the the book is called through the curtain and the reason it's called this is because Each time she went to these night classes, she had to pass through what she described as a curtain of energy to this mental plane, this other dimension where the classes took place. And when Shafika asked a question while she was apparently asleep, she said that she had to move her consciousness into the center of this curtain of energy to communicate with Shafika. And then to listen to the class, she had to kind of move oh. out of the curtain and go back into the class. It's like she's crossing between worlds. So, that, yeah, that's exactly what she was doing. So Shafika would ask a question, like, oh, ask, ask the professor this. And she'd go, okay, hang on. And she'd go over <laughs> to the classroom. She'd go, put her hand up. Uh, professor, what's the meaning of this? And he'd give her an answer. Then she'd go back into the curtain and essentially uh, narrate what she remembered from the answer to Shafika. Um. So it's it's this fascinating idea, and I remember coming across this book years ago, and just thinking, you know, this this is such an interesting premise. But when you actually go into the lessons she's taught, it's it's not really show material because a lot of it is using its own terminology. It's all hyper spiritual, talking about different frequencies and dimensions, and it's Steiner esque in its complexity. Uh, But as I was going through it, because I'd never really read it, I'd never really gone through it because of the style it was written in, but I decided to persist with it today. And I came across this entry on the Akashic Records. So she claims on December the 10th, 1961, she went to one of these night classes and the night class was about the Akashic Records. And in her recollection of the class, she said it was a discussion on the, the planetary records, an explanation of what they were and their value in the future. She said the lecturer pointed out briefly that there was a great deal of nonsense about the Akashic Records and that every report of clairvoyance and mediums being able to read it and give individuals life readings on it was nonsense. That's a bit refreshing. Kind of puts our last little yeah, segment into, into content. Yeah. Uh, all the members of the class knew this. And I should point out that when she's going to this class, it's just like a very kind of beautiful, uh, very ornate university lecture hall. Uh, different size rooms, 
And, and there's also other students there with her. It's not just her and a teacher. It's like a class. For whatever reason, I just get this image of it all being like different types of extraterrestrials and different <laughs> beings. And I don't know. She says they're always human. Um, and when she's specifically asked about their nationality or where they're from, uh, she just says, you know, they're from various places on the earth. And you can tell like there's, there's some foreigners there. There's people of different skin colors. But she never really communicates too much with the students. You're always focused on the lecture. Uh, she did say there's a bunch of German guys in there at one point, <laughs> like taking notes, furiously taking notes. I don't know what that means. Um, so essentially there were four members in the class in this particular evening. And after the other lectures were over on the political leaders of the world and the vortices of evil on the planet, I went into this class on the Akashic Records. So basically the previous class that she just missed, like you just come in and the teacher's scrubbing it off the board. That class was the political leaders of the world and the vortices of evil on the planet. Is that where the Germans were? <laughs> yeah, they had taken notes. <laughs> oh, what is our next plan? <laughs> so guys, that didn't work. What do we do now? Third time's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, she missed that class. She gets the Akashic Records class. You'd be kicking yourself though if you missed political leaders of the world and the vortices of evil on the planet. But I might be able to get into that later. Uh, in this lecturer, he starts explaining that the Akashic Records of the planet are the recordings in the seventh ether of every event on the planet. That is, in a sense, this recording was like having a moving picture camera because remember, this is like in 1960-something. A mm -hmm. moving picture camera taking pictures of events that go on like a television camera taking a newsreel, only there's a complete recording of everything, everything that ever happened on the planet ever without exception. So that time, you know, you farted in public and were embarrassed, that's in the Akashic Records. That time that you did something so cringeworthy in high school that you just want to shoot yourself every time you think about it, that's in the Akashic Records. All the horrible, embarrassing, regretful things you've done are permanently etched in another dimension, in this seventh ether in the cosmos, and it can never be erased. Just how does that make you stop and think about how that makes you feel? <laughs> Just for a second. She claims there's an automatic built-in moving picture camera that just continuously records all events and it gets imprinted on the seventh ether, the highest ether. And I think she's talking about dimensions when she talks about ether. But she says in the future, there will be people who will be able to read these records and see them. And the recordings aren't the way we would think of just a, a video, uh, you know, with sound and, and all that. She claims that the recordings record the principles behind what you're observing. So for example, if it's a, a great moment in history, it will show you what that meant for the human race, how it happened, the forces behind it, how the human race made the decisions that led to the actual historical events that were recorded. So you get context is, I guess, what I'm saying. You get this immersive context. So you get the physical events that recorded earthquakes, tidal waves, all of that. Um, so recalling a memory of throwing up in the back of your friend's car while you're extremely drunk 
it's just somehow shown all the political events that related to that. Yeah, everything that led up to that, like this butterfly effect, what that did to your friend because your friend had to go and get his car cleaned and then he was short on his rent and then he got kicked out of his rent. But it also became, stopped him from being in a horrible car accident. Well, then he became a heroin addict. <laughs> and that was all because you couldn't hold your liquor and you threw up in the back of the car. And you get to see all that. And not only do you see all of that kind of play out, it also records the mental reaction of mankind to the event. So if it's something small that you're talking about, you can observe the thoughts and emotions and feelings of everyone. A singular personal. You know, just yeah. grossed out by you spewing up in the car. But for something grand, like a tsunami that wipes out, you know, half of a country, you experience the pain and anguish and you can measure all that went through the minds of the zeitgeist of people that experienced it. So this is the recording. Now, what's interesting is this lecturer tells her that in the future, the sixth root race, and when she speaks about the root races, it's kind of a, it's like a th theosophy thing where they don't mean like black, white, Asian. They, they mean there's a particular race of human beings that exist on the planet in a particular time period. Like, you mean like a species, like Homo sapiens sapiens? Yeah, that's a better way to think of it. It's like a group kind of human race rather than us breaking up into the races of different ways we understand it now. Um, so in the future, there's going to be a new race of humankind. We're the fifth root race. There's a sixth root race that will come uh, and they will have command of this Akashic record. And there'll be more individuals in society who will be able to access it. This is what she's told. Uh, she said he he informed us most of the clairvoyants and mediums were merely seeing sections of the astral plane which were true or not true, confused or not confused. He's referring to mediums today. None of them are in fact reading the Akashic records because they are not read in that way. He says, when we will have access to these records of the planet, we will know history as it truly happened. We will see the principles involved between the forces of good and evil, the forces that produced a certain culture, for example. Also, any kind of architecture is a projection of the energy patterns and the consciousness of the people. It's kind of weird. This guy's a weird professor. He's just taken this weird diversion into architecture. But interesting, nevertheless, architecture is a projection of the energy patterns of people, the consciousness of people. He says art is the same. It's a projection of energy patterns and consciousness. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, particularly when you look at modern architecture now, I mean, you see these sterile concrete and steel, very boring buildings. And then you look into only recent history, you know, like Art Deco, for example, or even just a little bit further back, you know, you find the ornate carvings and just the, the beauty in it. It's like that, and you can see that that's kind of happened in society as well. We've become very sterile. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great analogy of the inner life of human beings. Yes. Like you look at the grand cathedrals built when people dedicated themselves, like a faith or a spiritualism. Yeah, they yeah, all had and faith. Now, kind and of eradicated all the the architecture of traditional cultures. You know, it it represents something that they had inside them. Um, but today, yeah, a lot of that's gone. We just build like glass, ugly glass things. <laughs> Dildo buildings. Dildo everywhere. building, yeah, yeah. That's representation. Um, and so the political systems uh, and religion are also a projection of this as well, of the mental and spiritual inner life of human beings. Uh, but again, we come back to America. Like uh, our last uh, insane guy said that America is going to lead the new androgyny and now Viola was told by this lecturer in another dimension 
that in America, there will be a beginning of obtaining the record, which will explain the why and wherefore of history and give mankind for the first time principles which they never really understood before. Again, you guys listening, enjoying your Thanksgiving, you're going to be the ones to unlock the Akashic records, apparently. So just please don't look up anything that I did. You can look up Aaron's stealing no, in the back so- of the car. <laughs> I did not say that was me. I do have a lot to hide, but that, yeah, well, whatever. I want mine to be blacked out like a CIA document. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm going to be like a, an SEC document. Like the whole yeah. thing's black. I just wanted to be classified. Yeah. You don't have classif- You don't have the clearance to view Benjamin Grundy's Akashic records. <laughs> Got to be able to pull those strings. Maybe I'll ask my guides. <laughs> so no, if- you need to go for a run in the forest at the back here. And be like, guides, help me. <laughs> Cover it up. March the 25th, 1962, another night class. She says, at present, we are in a kind of no man's land waiting for the attack on humanity. Many Venusians and Martians are being forced out of their present ways of life in preparation for having them out of the danger areas and in places where they could give better cooperation when the real crisis comes. And I, what the hell? What the hell is this? I was just reading about some nice astral Akashic record. Now she's talking about Venusians and Martians being invaded and where there's an attack on humanity coming. So, okay, reading further. It seems she's referring, this is what she's instructed on, There's souls on planet Earth who may have incarnated here multiple times, but their origins are not from Earth. They come from the various uh, other planets in the solar system. So there's Martians, there's Venusians, there's Jupiter, Jupiterians. So is this why people that have past life regressions sometimes recall memories on other planets? That's That's what she's saying. Remember the guy that described being like a pink dolphin on an extraterrestrial world? Yeah. That kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what she's saying. Like a lot of people are from different planets. Like they might have gone through a hundred lifetimes on Mars and then for whatever reason, they just were like, okay, it's time to go to this other place. And they started incarnating on Earth. But they're still referred to as Martians. They still have the innate qualities of the planet of their origin, I guess. So is she suggesting that their incarnation on Earth is, is accelerating? Um, well, she mostly talks about the innate qualities that each of those people have. She doesn't go into their destinies or anything like that. Um, and again, this is all just told to her in these night classes. So this is where I started to get interested in this book. I'm like, where is this going? January the 3rd, 1962. She's in another night class. She starts talking about how the eighth sphere is begotten of two parents, the life of substance and the substance itself, which is the father and the mother. But there's no spirit aspect to this eighth sphere. This life of substance is a black light, and the progeny of this union are the misbegotten demons of darkness, the soulless spawn of evil because there is no spirit aspect. It is a sphere of hopelessness. And I'm like, what the hell? I thought this was like a nice, fluffy... Um, speak to your guides, you know, love and light. No, no. This gets really dark by the end of this. <laughs> I just thought, great, <laughs> this is awesome. So the eighth sphere, I realized, if you th- think about the other planets, the eighth sphere is Pluto. And the ultimate end of this sphere, this is what she's told in the lecture, is annihilation. It is an evil center of power. 
denizens of this sphere are on the planet Earth with some of the creators of this evil. These uh, demonic beings are totally evil, whereas their creators can never be totally evil. These demonic beings are a temporary creation. They do the work of their creators in demoralizing and corrupting and terrifying mankind. These soulless beings will be more visible to mankind in the time ahead when the forces of evil will come into full manifestation. Today, these demonic beings are like anchor points for a great network of evil on the planet. Once and for all, mankind, especially Earth and humanity, will truly experience what evil is and will have to choose. And then she says, New Guinea is the focal center of the eighth sphere. But how do, <laughs> how do we get to New Guinea? Uh, I have no idea. There's some kind of jungle guy, you know, swinging from, a, I don't know what they do in New Guinea. <laughs> well, gonna, it, is, it is densely jungled in certain locations. I was so going to say fine. swinging from a vine, but that is very insensitive. Well, there are vines. Okay, so they're uh, probably right. swinging yeah. from a vine in New Guinea. But they're the center of the eighth sphere of this planet of evil. How does this even work? So then she does a breakdown. This is what she's told in this lecture of the different races. So she talks about Jupiterians. They're conscious on many levels. They're aware of the psychic world around them. Many of them are conscious mediums. But they're dimwit idiots. They're slow to learn. Uh, and when they come to Earth, they learn quickly and also learn about evil. Um, but they're kind of... Like, I know maybe it's Neptune, the Neptune guys that are the dumb ones. I, it I doesn't take that matter. Back. I take that back about the Jupiter people. But they're also apparently more easily contacted by saucer people, she's told. So, the contactees are more likely to be Jupiterians. Jupiterians, yeah. Uh, Martians who have been to Pluto to develop the ability to sense or smell the Plutonians. Um, smell them? Yeah, it's like they can sniff out. Because the, the Plutonians are like evil, right? And they can sniff them out. <laughs> if you're got, if you, because you listening to this, you might not realize, but you might be a Martian mm. or Jupiterian or Evil. a Mercurian. You can, you have a sense. This might be you. If you have a sense, like you just have a gut feeling when someone's not right, someone's evil. They might have this facade of charm and they might be very impressive in various ways, but you just get this feeling and you know that they're not right. You might be a Martian. Um, Mars is the lower octave of Pluto because they pursue scientific knowledge and truth, the material world. They are the militant defenders of truth. They are warriors. They carry the banner of truth into the far frontiers of the solar system. Then you've got the Mercurians. They're the observers of the planet. They collect knowledge and can be good teachers. Um, so they're just basically like the archivists. So, you know, you're your collectors, your museum people, your gatherers of knowledge. If that's you, you might be a Mercurian. Neptunians, these are the these are the, the <laughs> these are the bimbos. They're vague, fuzzy in their thinking, not even aware of the evil forces. They're aware of the mental plane and other planes, uh, and they often say things that are correct, but without really knowing what these things mean. Uh, they have the capacity to inspire people with the energy of certain ideas without giving them the mental tool with which to work. They could carry the energy of certain ideas and use it to stimulate others who have the mental equipment to earth these ideas. So, you know, I, you know people like this who they're not uh, intellectuals, they're not um, overly um, eloquent, but they might get the vibe of something and they might get the vibe of some... Uh, overbearing truth that a lot of people miss. Yeah, well, there's also, there's elements of people that, you know, it's a, 
a combination of you know intelligence versus emotional intelligence. And you find that there are some people that are like a lower level of, you know, kind of academic intelligence, but a much higher level of emotional intelligence. So let's move on and see where this goes. So June the 10th, 1962, she's in another night class and she's in this large auditorium. This is an important one. And um, there's all these students there and higher beings. So it must be a big speech. And the speaker seems to be someone from the Council of the Seven from Shambhala. And they start talking about the planet Pluto. It's an invader planet, this eighth sphere, and it constitutes an integrated and hard core of evil. The invader planet chose the planet Earth to take over because the humanity on this planet is at a great point of crisis in its evolution. We're weak, we're vulnerable. Therefore, the planet Pluto has a deification of matter or substance, which is the pullback on evolution. So this gets complicated. She goes into this like weird dark substance that permeates the energy of the planet and it acts as a cancer on the solar system. Okay. Uh, And they claim, she's told in this lecture, that Pluto was thrown off from another solar system and then moved into orbit around our sun and seeks the conquest of planet Earth to extend the kingdom of darkness. The means of control of Earth humanity by Plutonians are, see if this chimes a bell, communication, television, radio, and the press, the education of children, Mm. the governments of the world, Mm -hmm. and the money of the world. It all makes sense. The economic system of the world. The Plutonians do not want Earth humanity to get into space, but they go along with the space program because they want to bankrupt people with government and taxation. Unfortunately, it is necessary for the humanity of Earth to be more uncomfortable and distressed than they are now in order for them to realize what evil does to them and therefore enlist their own free choice and their desire for good. So essentially, she's told you can't liberate people who don't know they're enslaved. Yep, that's true. These forces of evil do not have the wealth of the planet Earth, but they have set up control of the wealth through money. As soon as these people of the planet As soon as the people like us really know their predicament and ask for help, the frequencies for cleansing will be directed on the planet. So apparently there's all these uh, higher entities waiting for us to go, hang on a second, what's going on with these people? Uh, Those who are too materialistic will go out of incarnation and won't return to the planet. The earth humanity will at first be bewildered because there will be no uh, Pluto to manipulate its wealth. So they're really hammering that these Plutonians are in control of wealth. They're in co- they're manipulators of money, and this uh, there's a, there'll be a planetary hierarchy set up, and then eventually humanity will be in charge of themselves again. And then she starts going through what she's lectured on of the uh, IQ differences among the races. Oh and I'm no! Like, Finally, we get to do a show on race and IQ. It's just <laughs> one of those one of those shows. Just been waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the race and IQ show. I know people have been waiting for it. <laughs> so of the upper 20% of the intellectual range of humanity, it's composed of the following percentages. So this is the, the, the top 20%, the top tier, the smart guys. Of those, the Plutonians have the highest percentage in that. Well, graph. yes, like with great intelligence comes great evil. Yeah, so they're followed by the Martians because the Martians are always also materialistic. So mm-hmm. there's like 6% of the Plutonians are in that like top percent. 
and then 4% are Martians, and then it goes down like Venusians are 3, Mercurians are 2, Jupiterians are 1%, and Neptunians are like 1% because they're the bimbos. <laughs> space bimbos. The space bimbos. Uh, and then the lower 80% are just Earth humanity. So when I say all these like Martians, Venusians, Mercurians, um, you might not be any of these. You might just be a regular Joe Blow human. And that's like, you probably are. That's like 80% of people. Um, but we're all united because the Plutonians have come to planet Earth to invade and exploit and take over. And this, this, this for the rest of these lectures, like she goes to one in August of 1962, they're talking about the goal of the various races and why they came. And then every time it comes back to the Plutonians and how they're just, they just invaded en masse. They've got like an army of demons that they sent to the earth ahead of them. She's told that they came and incarnated, but they also came in spaceships from Pluto. So that's like this whole... So it's not just spiritual, it's also physical There's as well. an ET thing as well. They actually came in ships. Um, and uh, essentially... The, the goal of the Martians and Venusians was to bring about this high-cultured, um, very compassionate, loving civilization with, you know, high, like all the nice things you see in like a future monorail flying yeah. through a silver city, like yeah. the way the future was supposed, supposed to be. But the Plutonians screwed everything up. They came and stopped all this with their evil plans. So remember on the last Plus show... I spoke about Nigel Kerner and his philosophy on the greys, where yep. he claimed that the grey aliens had inserted something in, in between the origin of mind of human beings and their physical bodies. But didn't we describe that that was necessary to attenuate just the overwhelming you know, energies that are coming through? No, that's what Rudolf Steiner said. Oh, Steiner. And we made right. that connection because Steiner also said, before you're born, there's an entity that is non-human that is essentially jumps on it jumps onto you before you bound to you and it modulates the uh nervous system this entity is responsible for it. and nigel kerner was saying a similar thing in that the the greys had inserted something that modulates human thinking which gives them control well guess what she's told in this lecture viola is told that the plutonians used a frequency band which was inserted to affect the physical brains and astral bodies of earth humanity it was done in such a way to inhibit and delay their growth and thinking and development. She says we may call it the first great brainwashing. And brainwashing, she's, she's told, is exclusively a Plutonian invention. Earth humanity has been bewildered and confused and has been in the wilderness ever since. But the time is close when, as in the fairy tales, the spell will be lifted. Earth humanity will begin to make up for its long sleep in matter. So do these different space races incarnate or arrive here as part of uh, particular groups on Earth or are they just dispersed amongst all populations? I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know if they come in a particular time period, maybe a particular nationality or race. Um, she does. She is told later of the Plutonians that um, they didn't develop soul development because they don't have that in their planetary system. They're, they're lacking this kind of spiritual nature that the rest of us have. Uh, but what they do develop in its place, she says, they developed a very strong, powerful race group soul on the concrete mental plane. Well, this is like what Nandor Photo was describing with each group creating a gestalt, like some type of 
entity that's so powerful that battles yeah. other entities on the spiritual yeah, plane. Totally right. It's like uh, egregores fighting each other, mm. but they have a really powerful race egregore that cannot be defeated. And she's told each individual is like a finger of this monster race group soul, which because of its very nature is very powerful, integrated, one-pointed and one purpose for a long age of time. To all intents and purposes, it is immortal. This is why the highly intelligent Plutonians have a feeling of being invincible and immortal at an, uh, an attitude which impresses and awes ordinary Earth humanity. Um, so they go on to say that they essentially look at uh, human beings as their stock, their slaves. And um, there's this detail he goes into, the lecturer talks about the chordate nucleus of the brain. Um, and this is what they've basically cut off. They've inserted this layer that's under their control. Um, and this chordate nucleus is directly connected to the thymus gland, which is connected to the heart center. And this has inhibited the intellectual development of man and also our spiritual development by these Plutonians who inserted it there. Humanity will begin to use this latent ability, though, in the future, because essentially in later lectures, they describe this scenario where these Plutonians, once enough of us go, hang on a second, what's going on here? They will be removed from the planet. <laughs> so if you wake up one day and, you know, maybe your husband or your wife is suddenly gone, maybe they were secretly a Plutonian and were working to enslave the human race. I'm just saying, like, that could well, no, be the explanation. It, it wouldn't work that way because if the whole point is people have to wake up, well, then you have to wake up and work out, like, oh, hang on a second. Yeah, you would already realize. Plutonian. You're like, you oh, have to get out of the house. I married a Plutonian. What did I do? Uh, so this chordate nucleus thing that they've cut us off from is a radar system that allows us to make direct contact with other dimensions. That's what she's told. Um, and this was blocked by the Plutonians with their frequency modulating stuff. Uh, they also used it to um, direct our motivation towards material things and sex. And they first developed this with the Atlanteans, which is why they had so much sex with dinosaurs, which is what I'm saying, not what she's told. <laughs> <laughs> See, this all adds up. It's all connected. I was just thinking, like, oh my God, it all makes sense now. <laughs> no, she doesn't mention the dinosaurs. She should though, because that's obviously true. So uh, eventually they talk about um, thought forms. They go into the power of thought forms. But as you just, I mean, you eloquently pointed out, the Plutonian invasion uh, was both by a type of spaceship, she's told, and by simply incarnating in this human life wave on the planet. Uh, but they're governed by this this incredibly powerful group soul that is essentially controlling planet Earth. So she goes into how they control the banking system, they control the media. Like, it, oh my god, <laughs> it just gets crazy. And you remember, oh, I remember what Nandor Fodor said about the the powerful Gestalt that. <laughs> I don't want to sound a little bit yay, so I'm not going anywhere near there. Uh, so, yeah, it gets it gets pretty interesting. They're, they're not interested in sex, but she also says they control... <laughs> she literally says they control pornography. <laughs> I'm not going to connect any dots on this show. <laughs> so let's just take this with a huge grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at this point, she says um, humanity is suffering from emotional fatigue. And also, we're being overstimulated in the astral body. And um, it's this intense stimulation being applied to us at this stage. 
And doesn't everyone feel it? So what is going to happen in the future? Well, she goes to this final class. It's on May the 31st, 1962. And this is again at the Temple of Records. It's at the Akashic Records. And they're taken to this these giant sheets of gold that are sealed and they're laid on a table in front of this huge auditorium and there's a bit of a ceremony and they open this this huge golden book and light streams out of it and there's like heavenly choir going, oh, and it's got this incredible information on it. And all these individuals, there's like 200 people in this auditorium like floating above watching what this information reveal is. And uh, this representative from bloody Shambhala or something starts reading it. And he starts reading about the third purification of the planet. Now, we've gone through two, according to what she's told. And she's told that the physical planet will wrinkle its skin and the continents and oceans will move. There will be purification by fire, water, and wind. At first, there will be gradual warnings, earthquakes, shocks, but then things will accelerate Man will hasten the day for his own tampering with the forces of nature, for man has seized the thunderbolts of God and flung them into the earth, the sea, and air with the irresponsibility of children playing with toys without due consideration, without wisdom, and without moral responsibility. In this time, there will be removed from the planet the invader men who have corrupted the earth and those of the third solar system who are still mired in substance. So... Is she describing like another biblical flood of some kind? Well, basically she's saying the Plutonians are going to be removed, but there's like another group of people who come from the third solar system, which, because we're the second solar system and there's like other ones that are in other, just other regions of space and we're kind of connected in some weird way that I don't understand. Mm. Um, Somehow the people from the third solar system got transported to our planet and they've been here ever since and they're just kind of crap. I don't so kick him out. I don't know who they are. Uh, this also marks the, the purification of the solar system. The etheric sun will cast out the invader planet and a new harmony will be established in the solar system. There'll be a new day with a brighter, clearer atmosphere and there'll be a purification and a renewal of the earth. The new day comes on quickly and uh, the time is indicated that this purification... Uh, this depends on man himself as to when this is going to happen. That's essentially what she's saying. I don't know. It sounds very Akashic, you know, uh, what's it called? Great Reset. But finally, where she gets to is that the United States um, will essentially be the trigger point that sets all this off. Again, this is what she's saying. (laughs) And in the United States, people will be forced to choose they'll be exposed to this um essentially extreme evil and they'll they'll have to choose uh and if they choose correctly then all of this will kick off so this is the late 60s and what we're now a few decades from there is this starting to happen well she keeps on going to classes i I said that was the last one but that was the last one of the 1960s so she eventually goes to classes in the 1970s and you know how steiner talks about the great the White Lodge and the Black Lodge. Yes. Had there's a white brotherhood and a, a dark brotherhood working for forces of evil and forces of good. Um, so she's eventually revealed in one of these uh, lectures, the five masters of the Black Lodge. And she's told these are physically incarnated humans. So they're not in on the astral plane or anything. They just live amongst us. And they're in charge of 
essentially activities to destroy humanity. That's their so purpose. Soros, Gates, Schwab. <laughs> yeah, you just spoilers, dude. Why are you naming them all? <laughs> <laughs> you have to say their name, Ben. <laughs> Uh, and she talks about the five activities that they're in, char- in charge of. Um, so there's one black master who controls the uh, Kundalini elementals. So apparently there's these elemental forces of fire, which aren't good or evil. They're just, you know, just what it is. Deva forces of the planet. Yep. They take care of nature. These This black magician, this black master of this black lodge can apparently control them through magical means and direct them to people and cause strange psychic phenomena that's not of the astral plane. So maybe half the stories we do on the show are caused by this black magician in his tower in Hamburg somewhere (laughs) doing some occult ceremony to direct these fire demons at people. Um, So witchcraft belongs to this kind of activity and she's told whether they know it or not, uh, witchcraft practitioners become small pipelines for these negative elemental forces, which in many places are causing people to do weird and inhuman things. Hmm? Oh, no, I believe it. Seen any of that lately? Yeah, well, mm, Seen any weird yeah. and inhuman things Yes, lately? I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, this master is influencing and clouding the minds of scientists who work with atomic energy. And so essentially he's using these different forces to push their development into more weapons, more powerful destruction, that kind of stuff. And medical science, apparently. Uh, and he basically controls demons on the astral plane and destructive entities to keep uh, human beings uh, in the material realm. The The other force that's mentioned, the second Black Master, um, promotes the use of narcotics, psychedelics, and hallucinogenic drugs. Mm, okay. This uh, is organized for the whole planet from the producing of the drugs to the distribution and the recruiting of the users. It's not something that's just happened on planet Earth. It's been organized. Yeah, see, I only saw recently uh, Graham Hancock on Joe Rogan. I don't normally follow, but I I saw this one. Um, And he said something along the lines of, I don't know if it was Graham Hancock or uh, the other guy that was on there, but this idea that, look, anyone that gets into politics should have to go uh, undergo, you know, some sessions with hallucinogens. I'm like, is that necessarily such a good idea? Especially if you're dealing with low-level entities. Like, and then this is being described as being negative and evil. Yeah, I couldn't believe he said that. That's amazing. It's actually really disturbing when you think of it. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I get the idea about hallucinogens kind of, you know, opening up your empathy and granting you greater understanding, but does it? And then from this, I'm like, it's being controlled by an evil force. I mean, you would think that way if you've only read the, you know, any experienced the you know, the positive Positive stories, and there are plenty of those, but as we know from this show, there's There's plenty that aren't. Bad effects, yeah. Like, what if, what if Trump or, you know, what if Trump took one of these psychedelics and he was a suitcase under the, (laughs) under the stairs for three years? What if he was transformed into a suitcase? Like that famous story we covered where the guy turned into a beach towel and he was hanging on someone's pool (laughs) for a year. (laughs) The bedspread. Yeah. I mean, some people would say that's a good thing. <laughs> I guess it gives new meaning as to uh, getting into bed with Trump, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's, there's this guy that's in charge of all the drugs. Um, and there's a third black master who sabotages world leaders. So this, is, uh, this guy directs, confuses, bemuses, blackmails, bribes, honeypots, just sabotages world leaders especially in government, um, but also in other areas of leadership. Gee. 
Well, I mean, this would be someone like um, the um, who's the guy who had the plane in the island? <laughs> Epstein. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this that was the the allegations against him before he killed himself. Yeah, but allegedly the CCP's been doing that too. Oh yeah, that's old school communist tactics yeah. for sure. But the, apparently they're saying there's one guy who's like coordinating it all. <laughs> Imagine like the, the screens he must have. <laughs> I feel like something out of Minority Report. Yeah, it's like Wall Street around. on steroids. Yeah. He's got all these monitors. He's got secret cameras of every like <laughs> world leader's bedroom. Honeypots, all these honeypots going on at once. Um, so that's what that guy does. The fourth black master sabotages the economy of the world. Uh here again, we see the greed of many individuals and the lethargy of a vast number facilitate this activity. So basically, uh, there's someone who, uh, and this would make you think of, you know, central banks and the uh, corruption in the uh, economic world, the financial world. But there's basically a well-organized economic structure that is controlled and messed with so that uh, people suffer. Yep. Uh, and the fifth black master, the final one, is in charge of uh, an organized group of initiates and black disciples who is, whose intent and purpose is to destroy the process of education and to substitute in its place every possible method of corrupting the human race at an early age through to the adult level. So state indoctrination. Just, uh, yeah, teaching people, teaching kids horrible things. There is supposedly a real incarnated black magician of the Dark Lodge who's or, or driving this, organising You thing. see it all happening. All five. Like, all five things seem to be happening. So she's not that far off the mark. So I'm glad I went into it. So we're going to look out for these Plutonians, okay? Just the Martians. I know you guys can sniff them out. Let us know if you yep. pick anything up. I'm pretty sure I'm a Neptunian because I get the vibe of things, but I'm a bit of a retard. No, you're not. You're probably you're more a Saturnian. I think I'm a Mercur. I think I'm a Mercurian. Yeah, you're a curator, and because I collect all these stories. There you go. Remember none of them and tell them on the show. (laughs) Bad news. I'm a Neptunian. And for the Americans, Happy Thanksgiving. And just remember, you are in charge of the androgynous rebirth of the planet. You're also in charge of hunting out the Plutonians. That's all up to you as well. But it's kind of counterintuitive because if you're hunting out the Plutonians, I thought the whole point of being like this enlightened androgynous soul is that you're all love and light. So how are you going to kick the face off a Neptunian? I don't know. Sometimes you just can't. You can't make friends with evil. You've got to destroy it. Isn't that the old saying? I would have thought so. But Australia's never mentioned once. Like, we have nothing. We don't have to do anything. We just have to sit back sit and back relax. Sit back and enjoy it. Yep. Yep, that's kind of what's happening. Th- I'm sure that's why I chose to incarnate during this time. I look at the world, I'm like, why? <laughs> why did I come here at this time? I'm like, because <laughs> it's to see this clown world that we're in. There's like a menu screen when you're incarnating and then you just organize it like by descending... Uh, the amount of effort you need to put in. <laughs> and Australia's like pretty much in the top. So you're like, yeah, that sounds good. Boop. You just go, boop. <laughs> and then you incarnate into a baby. <laughs> and then you get born in Australia. It is yep. a lucky country after all. Thanks so much for listening. That's a wrap for this free show. If you want to get access to the big stuff coming up, we've got amazing things coming up in our plus extension. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Aaron's going to be going into people just 
bursting into balls of flame. Pretty much, yep. Teleporting horses, uh, strange assassination mists, assassination needles, uh, this really weird phenomenon that occurred throughout the late 1800s and into the uh, early 1900s that was written off as being some type of mass psychosis. But apparently there is considerable evidence out there that no people were actually being perforated by strange phantom assailants. uh, Perforated? As in stabbed, stabbed by something. Needled. Uh, a whole heap of just very, very strange deaths that occurred across the globe. It wasn't localised just to one particular location, and there appears to be phantom assailants that are associated with it. So you're saying people were getting jabbed and then just suddenly dying? (laughs) (laughs) That is weird, dude. That is a weird MU topic. That's coming up after the break. If you want to get access to that, head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. You get access to these big extensions every single week. You also get an exclusive show that comes out on Tuesdays. You're getting more than double the content if you sign up for Plus. If you're on Plus, you also get a higher quality audio version of the show. You also get a totally ad-free experience. And if you sign up for MU Max, you get access to our entire back catalogue of a decade plus worth of shows, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows in there. Uh, that's all available on MU Max. Check it out, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. That's a wrap for this free edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Great to have you with us.